Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I have to tell you something, people. Since I moved back east, it's almost it's coming up on a year, I have become fascinated with squirrels. And it's amazing because I always look out my back porch window, and they're running around, and they're having fun. And there's two I really enjoy. There's a heavier one, and there's this little skinny one with a big tail. But the other day, something happened that freaked me out. I was looking out the window, and hanging off the screen door was a squirrel in the middle. Like, he was affixed to it. And what really amazed me about it was he was upside down. And I took a picture, and I sent it to Joanne. And Joanne was like, I hope he doesn't rip our screen. Because you don't think about that. But anyway, so I will tell you more squirrel stories down the road. But we have a great show today. I'm very excited to have uh, my guest. She's a former boxing champion. She's a uh, mental health advocate. And she has a great new podcast called In the Ring with Mia St. John. And my guest is Mia St. John. How you doing, Mia? Hi, I'm great. Thanks for having me. No problem. Now, now you live in L.A. I used to live in L.A. There, do you notice, is there a lot of squirrels in L.A.? Because I never saw a lot when I lived out there. No, yeah, we actually have a lot. Well, I mean, I live... I lived in Calabasas for like 30 years, you know, which has been, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's like in the canyon, Mulholland, and so we have a lot of, you know, nature, and um, and I also live in Palm Springs, and we have a lot of nature too, so I'm, I'm surrounded by it. Well, that's good. So, now you grew up in San Francisco, I believe, right? No. Born in San Francisco, but I was raised in the LA County area. Now, at what point in your life? I know you started off with martial arts. When did you get into when did you get into martial arts and the whole idea of you know that kind of training? Well, I was actually put into the martial arts at six years old by my father, who is a nuclear engineer, but was fascinated with the martial arts back in the 70s, um, which a lot of people were. It was, you know, uh, the big thing with Bruce Lee, and so a lot of people were into that. Um, and my dad being a nuclear engineer, you know, I guess it was just like that uh, he had a passion for, and it took him away from his job, you know. Um, and so I kind of forced to do it. I didn't fall in love with the sport until much, much later. And after competing for so many years, I decided to turn pro. Um, but I went pro in boxing instead of kickboxing. And the only requirement from my parents was that I get a college degree. So I got a psych degree and graduated and then my career began. I began with Don King, so he kind of put me on the map. What made you decide to get a psych degree? Was that something that fascinated you from me as a young person, or why did you choose psychology? I just wanted to find out about myself. You know, um, I had suffered from um, OCD and panic disorder and generalized anxiety disorder, and I wanted to know why. You know. Well, what's amazing is, you know, that that kind of, you know, the, the disorders like that, because I'm around your age, too, they weren't really prevalent. Like, you know, when I was growing up, you know, they said kids would be hyperactive or things like that. But it's very weird how it's changed so much because back then there was no real diagnosis. Well, I, I mean, obviously I went to um, 
a psychiatrist, but that's why I studied psychology because I wanted to know what disorders were, um, what caused them, and what could be done about it. And nowadays, we're much more evolved, and we know a lot more, but we're so ignorant. Um, you know, I mean, you see that now, like when you see the shooters, these mass shooters that we have, you know, they suffer from psychosis, schizophrenia, bipolar, and we still, the public still sees them and the media still sees them as evil, quote unquote evil. They don't realize they have an illness. And, and so we're treating the problem with, um, you know, guns, they're, they're weapons of choice, which we, the symptom, we need to treat the problem. So how do we... <laughs> you can take the guns away, but the problem is still going to be there. Right. And so, so, you know, how, I don't know you speak on mental health a lot. How do we do that? I mean, what, what would be your suggestions? Because the thing is, it's been going on for years. And now I think it's coming to more of the forefront because of social media. And we hear more about different events and mental illness. And it's just more in the in the news. But how would you start to take to take care of the mental illness problem? What would you do if you were in control of a board that said me? They said, Mia, here's what steps are you going to take to, to get us to the root and solve this problem? Well, it's going to take years, but first I would start with education. We need to make sure that our children are educated. In New Jersey, they have Mental Health 101. And so kids at least would know when they start hearing voices or delusions, they know to get help. Um, you know, that's a start um, you know that would have probably helped my son as well who suffered from schizophrenia um, but we just it, so it would take years you know we'd have to start educating the kids now and and hopefully by the time they grow up they're familiar with psychosis um, because a lot of people cannot even tell you what the definition of psychosis is you know we can we can talk about schizophrenia on social media and tweet it all we want, but if you don't really know what schizophrenia is, how will you recognize it? You know, there were so many signs with all of these shooters, and, and, and it went unnoticed or nobody did anything about it. It's because we're ignorant when it comes to mental illness. Nobody knows what to do. Nobody knows what it is. They didn't know the signs. Um, but we go. And, and, you know, mental illness, I mean, mass shootings and mass killings have been going on for so long. I mean, look at look at Charles Manson and Jim Jones and um, Hitler. I mean, there's lots of ways to commit mass murder. You don't have to use a gun. And Jim Jones killed 900 people with cyanide. Well, it's funny you mentioned New Jersey. I now live in New Jersey where I grew up in New Jersey. And one of the first mass shooting murders was a guy named Unruh, I believe. And he did it in New Jersey. And I remember my older sister did a, did a project on that in college. But you're right. It's been around forever. But as I said, now it's becoming more in the forefront. Right. Well, I think now we're starting to recognize it a little bit more. And people say, why are we all of a sudden having all this 
Like, no, we had it long before. Charles Manson it is the most notorious schizophrenic that our society has seen, or in my, you know, day and age. Um, like I said, Jim Jones, like, it's not at Jeffrey Dahmer, Ted Bundy. It's not like these guys, schizophrenia just came onto the scene. It's been around for many years. Right. Now you, you, as I said, you went to school for psychology and you've gotten to lend your voice to this and people know of you because of boxing. I want to talk about how you ended up getting into boxing too. What, you know, you got out of college and then what were you doing when you decided to become a boxer? I was boxing. I mean, I, I started fighting at the age of six. Um, so I had just made the decision to turn pro. I was in the amateurs, and I wanted to go to the Sydney Olympics. Uh, but I, I turned pro because I was getting older. Um, and, you know, we, there's, we have a very short lifespan, so you need to go pro as soon as you possibly can. And... So my first promoter I signed with Don King, and from then on I went to Bob And so that's kind of basically it. I've I, I been a fighter, you know, my whole life, and people kind of think I just jumped into it one day after an exercise class. And they don't know that the fighters were a group of a very young age, just like gymnasts, you know, or baseball players or, you know, football players. But we all start at young ages. Well, the thing, you know, you, you got into it, and it, it says a lot because at the time there wasn't a lot of women boxing. Did you feel any resistance? What was it like breaking into that field back then? Because when you talk about a sport that is male-dominated, it's boxing. What was it like for you? Was it, was it easier because you're with Don King, or did you hit a lot of obstacles? or What was your whole process? Well, obviously it was difficult because I'm in a man's world, but I had it easier because I was with Don King, and then I went to Aaron, so I was the biggest in the world. Um, and and Aram exposed me to television, you know, on the Oscar de la Hoya. And then he had me on the cover of, or Hugh Hefner had me on the cover of Playboy, um, doing the Tonight Show, Good Morning America, and Conan O'Brien. And so it's really how they marketed me, you know, by exposing me to the world, you know. Now your first fight, you knocked her you knocked her out in what, fifty four seconds? Correct. Now, what was your feeling going into that first fight that it's your professional fight? People are watching. What I mean, I talked to athletes before who are playing football and that's a team thing. What goes through your mind when you're sitting there, you're going into the ring and it's basically you're going into combat? I wanted to turn around and run home. I was so scared. Um, but that's part of the, you know, we're adrenaline junkies. That's what we love about it is the fear, the anxiety, the adrenaline. Um, that's what athletes love, and that's why it's so hard to retire because there's nothing else that gives you that. Now, you, you win that first fight, and then you start winning more. How often were you going to fight? What was the plan for you for, you know, is it, the same once a year, every three months, or what was the plan for you to fight, and, and how do you, you know, rebound from one fight? I was basically 
on pretty much every TV fight they had. So I was working a lot. Sometimes I was fighting every month. Um, and it was difficult. You know, it's a grueling um, sport. It's, it's barbaric. There's a lot of uh, brain damage, a lot of bodily damage. Um, and we pay for it. You know, athletes are, gosh, we're, we're so unhealthy. You know, by the time we're 50, you know, it's difficult to walk. And, you know, you see so many of them on walkers and then, you know, with arthritis and, um, you know, it's just, it's a difficult sport. We retire young. I retired at 50. I'm 50. I'm sorry. I retired at 49. I'm 50 now. Um, and a lot of the football players will retire a little bit younger. I mean, probably like in their late thirties, but we all suffer um, and probably age much quicker than the average individual, the average re- so after a match, after a boxing match, how long would it take you to recover? Though? Like, let's say, would it take a few days? Because, and especially if you knew you had another match coming up, you have to train for that. But what's the what's the downtime? I mean, it has to be you're getting hit. I mean, it's not like we just sit there and like we get up if we twist an ankle. We have a week to recover. And now during that week, you just would you just sit there and avoid everybody and stay in, or what would you do? We don't stop working out. Um, we just don't get hit in the head for a week. <laughs> I let the concussions, um, you know, if we have a concussion, we try to write it out before we start training again and, you know, try to heal our injuries as quickly as possible because you have to remember that's how we make a living. So, now as you're. As your, popu- as, as your popularity is growing, what is the reaction to you? Or, or do, do young women look up to you? I mean, it was before social media. I'm sure it'd be a lot different now. You know, people would be, you know, you'd be getting letters left and right. It was, you know, there was a lot, a lot of email when you were starting out. But what was the reaction to you? Did you feel, you know, because you are a, a, a front runner. You're, 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 a, you're inspirational. Did, did you feel that when you were doing, when you were boxing? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I knew it, and um, being, but, you know, somewhere along my career, I also realized that I was put in this position for a much greater purpose in life, rather than just beating the crap out of another human being. Like there had to be a greater purpose, and there, and that's what got me into motivational speaking and fighting for. Um, the rights of the mentally ill, um, you know, and I think my son kind of uh, put me into that position as well because I was fighting for him and kids like him, you know, and I just realized that um, that was really my main purpose. Like, boxing was just given to me as a platform well, it's great. to have my voice heard. Well, it's great that you've done that. Now, when you said, you know, you retired... Did you, I mean, when you retire, was, you said it's hard to walk away from it. Was it a hard decision for you, or did you just sit there and say it was time for you to go? Well, I retired 17 times, <laughs> okay. um, which shows you that it, it's very difficult. But after my son passed away, um, I fought a few more times 
and then the last time, my last fight was last year in New Zealand. I won the fight, but I came back to my hotel room and I knew that it was something I never, ever wanted to do again. Um, but it was so insignificant. Um, such a shallow sport. Um, as probably, as all, I'm sure, like all sports are pretty shallow. Um, but I no longer got pleasure from, you know, and that's when you know it's, it's really time to retire. <laughs> Now you won a few championships. What's it like when you win the championship, and then do you get do you get to keep the belt forever, or if you lose it, you have to give it back? How's that work? It's like I know the Stanley Cup in hockey; they pass it around, they pass it around. How's the belt work? Well, what happened? Okay, sorry. I had to take a drink of water. Oh, no problem. Well, the belts obviously are, you know, quite rewarding. I won five of them. And it's exhilarating. You know, I won my last major title, the WBC championship at the age of 45. And that was remarkable. And, of course, you, it's, it's, that not many people can say I'm a five-time world champion, you know. Who can say that? Right. Um, but again, it's, it's very superficial, and it's fleeting, you know. It's not of any real substance, other than it shows you that I'm a very determined person. And when I fight for something, I'm going to win. Well, you're when you got the belt when you were forty five. Is that did you fight Christy Martin? Yeah, I fought Christy Martin, my longtime rival. She beat me the first time, and I beat her the last time. Why did it take sixteen? I believe it took like sixteen years for you guys to to fight again. Why? How does that happen? You you know, you guys were both the top of your game. You think they'd be saying we want them to fight, sort of like you know when it was Ali and Frazier. You think they would be getting you guys to fight more often? Yeah, it was ten years. Before it took 10 years to make the rematch. And, you know, Christy didn't want the rematch because the first fight wasn't easy like she thought it was. She thought it was going to be easy and it wasn't. So for 10 years, she declined to fight. And finally, after 10 years, uh, there was a network that was able to talk her into it, and we did it. It was on ESPN. We, We were able to do it. That must, for you, that must be sort of frustrating because, you know, you sat there and everyone, as you said, everyone thought it was going to be an easy fight for her and you came in and you lasted the whole time and it was, you went head to head and then all of a sudden, you know, I'm sure you were eager to get back because it's like anything, you seem like a very driven person, so it's like, well, I lost that, but I, I know I can win. What what do you think, I mean, were, was it pissing you off that you couldn't get her back in the ring? Yeah, of course, but, but you know, you have to remember that boxing is a business and there were plenty of people that that wanted a rematch with me and I wouldn't give it to them because you know to put it very simply it the money just didn't make sense um and it's such a person Mayweather um Yao um you know all, all those fighters like we only go in if the money makes sense. if it doesn't 
then, you know, the deal can't be made. Well, that makes sense because, you know, you're, it's, you're giving your time and you're giving your training and you have to, you know, you're going to take a beating either if you win or lose, you're going to take a beating. So that makes completely business sense. Well, right. And people forget that, remember, this is our job. So it's kind of like in any job. If, if somebody, if your job wants to give you a promotion, well, um, if, is the money right, you know, or do you stay with this job or go with that job? Like, you're always going to a higher bidder, right? Right. <laughs> you know, it's, it's no different. Well, with, with your personal resilience, I know you had a ski accident. How did you come back from that? And what went through your mind when that happened? Because you are a boxer and your legs are very important. Um, yes, like I said, I, you know, I'm pretty resilient. So I always knew no matter what happened, if they took my leg, I was still going to fight. Um, and I planned for the worst case scenario was that my the bottom part of my leg would be taken. But, you know, that just, it didn't matter. You know, I've had two hips back to back. One went bad and I had to get another one done. And, you know, the doctors told me you're going to be in a wheelchair. And that doesn't really affect athletes. Like, we're, we're kind of crazy to begin with. And we're just really resilient. You know, nothing's really going to keep us down. Now, you know, in the forefront of the news is a lot of thing about concussions with the NFL. During your boxing, do you did you suffer a lot of concussions or did you know or how was the the you know, how did that get handled back then? Uh yeah, boxers suffer way more concussions than football players. Um, because that is what we're doing every day. We're hitting each other in the head. For football players not happening every day and that's not the goal of their game the goal is to get the football from one end to the other and during that time you know they might get taken in hard enough to knock you out and that's every single day so we are suffering far more concussions and we suffer far more deaths um and brain injury than any other sport it we're just not given the attention the media attention that football players are because there's a lot, there's so much money in the NFL, you know, boxers, we come from a lower socioeconomic status, whereas football players are coming out of college, you know? Um, so it's, it's very different. Now, a lot of boxers never even went to school. Now, have you suffered a lot of concussions that you know of, or was it just something that was swept under the rug? No, a lot of concussions that I know of, but it's common in boxing. It's, I mean, we know it, and I, I don't know if it's swept under the rug. It's just, it's unimportant. I mean, like, if, if, I, if, I, if I got done with a fight and I said I have a concussion, and the doctor said she has a concussion, so <laughs> nobody cares. Like, yeah, okay, whatever. Go home, go to sleep, go shake it off now there's nothing you can do if you have a concussion nothing you can do you just you go home you stay awake for a certain amount of hours and then that's it did you ever worry though i mean you know did you ever worry about the long term 
that you know that or was you just caught in the moment because as you said it was your job and this is what you loved I think we always worry, especially when we start seeing signs of long-term damage, you know, um, we worry, but I, I don't think we really worry until it, it starts happening to us. And it usually doesn't start happening until you've retired, and then you start seeing the damage, um, the way you walk, the way you talk, um, memory loss, things like that. Um, then you start to worry, but during the career, no, nobody's worried because you're just there. You're just thinking about now. Now you it's are kind of like kids who are doing drugs. They're not thinking; they just want to get high, party, and have fun. They're not thinking, well, one day, you know, we're yeah. It's kind of the same thing for fighters. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, because, yeah, as I say, you know, we always, as you said, you know, as you get older, I had, I had a heart condition a few years ago, and that's when you, you learn that you're not invincible anymore. But when you're young, you don't care. You just sit there and go, you know what? This is what we do. We're, we're rock and rolling. We're doing whatever. Exactly. So now you also fought an MMA fight. How did that come about? Um, well, just an um, MMA promoter offered me a fight on the beach of Penn card in Hawaii. And it was a great opportunity. I took it. I knocked the girl out and went back to boxing. Now, what do you think is MMA seems to be surpassing boxing these these days? And I grew up as a boxing fan, and I remember watching Why Water Sports and all the great fights. And as you said, you were on ESPN, and I remember when Tyson came out and everyone, and we watched it. Why do you think MMA, MMA is getting bigger ratings than boxing these days? It's getting bigger ratings for the smaller fights. It's nowhere near. Um, you know, the money that boxing still generates. I mean, look at our biggest paydays compared to what the MMA people are making. You know, they're still not making what the boxers are making. But yeah, like their smaller fights are getting um, more viewership. But if you put, you know, when we had Mayweather fighting or... um some of the recent fights we've had, it, it doesn't compare. You know, we still get the larger viewership. That's true. I mean, it just... And it's, has more money. Look at Floyd Mayweather got $350 million. <laughs> Name one fighter in MMA that even came close <laughs> to that type of money. Right. So Not even close. Yeah, it's it's just, but that's it seems like though like all the younger people are like they don't really they don't really know boxing and as I said you know it used to be an event I used to love watching boxing and the matches were great and there was a history in it and I and it's sad it makes me sad sometimes that that seems to be slipping away a little bit because it is such a part of our culture. So, so you retire now. When when did you start your nonprofit, the Mia uh, the Mia St. John Foundation? And tell me why why you started that and, and what you do with that, the the foundation. Well, I started that back in two thousand um, as a way to give back 
because I'm first generation born in America. My family still lives in Mexico and um, part of my family. And I just felt like I had to give back to the country, you know, that my family was from. And so we, we started going, uh, donated computers, electricity, internet to, um, barrios that didn't have any of that and then i brought it to the u.s and we started helping kids in oxnard in east l.a and then i started a program in palm springs and now we're in santa monica as well um at step up on santa monica daniel's place in santa monica and stone art in palm springs and that program which is for the mentally ill who are homeless started after my son passed away three years ago. Um, so I started in honor of my son. Now, how do you decide which area you'll go into? Is it is it something that you're driving through an area and you say, this is, this is you know, they need my help, or do people reach out to you? How do you decide which, which areas? Because there's in L.A. right now, there's so many areas that are with the homeless. It's, it's very, it's a very bad situation. Yeah, well, I just, I go where, I put my programs where the shelters are, where the facilities are. And in the one in Palm Springs I started myself, it was actually my son's art studio, and I turned it into a free center. So that's how that one happened. Now, yeah, we have problems in L.A. County with homelessness. I noticed, you know, and I, I lived in L.A. for close to 15, 18 years, and it really, it really picked up a level. I think it's because, you know, rents are very high and, you know, jobs. I mean, the, the, the cost of living is really through the roof. What is your insight of why the homeless situation? I know it's been up 29% in this last year. What, what do you think are the contributing factors to that? Uh, our lack of mental health care. You know, if you go down to Skid Row and you look at the homeless, they're, you know, a lot of them are in psychosis. They're mentally ill. Um, the majority are. They're self-medicating. So if they're not medicated, you know, they choose drugs, alcohol, anything that's going to make them feel better. Um, and, you know, they're no different than my son was. You know, my son would go off his meds, leave home, and start feeling psychotic and start self-medicating with drugs. And that would put him even more... Um, out of sorts, and he wouldn't know where he was at, and he'd, I'd have to go search downtown looking for my child, um, search the parks, the streets, and I would find them, you know, homeless in various different spots in L.A., and so many of them are in the same position as my son. You know, they're off their meds, they're psychotic, they're self-medicating, they're disoriented, they don't know where they're at, they're, um, it's very sad. And that's why I went into that, uh, that area, you know, in honor of my son to help other people that were like him. It's very admirable. Now, why do you, is it something that they run out of meds or why do people go off their meds? I know I have to take heart medication. And I, I stick with it. And for a while I did run about it because it was just so pricey with, even with my insurance and I was worried, but then I got a new insurance. But why, do, what is the, the factor that makes people go off their meds? Is it because it's not readily available to them? It's a lot 
lot of factors, but the main one is one of the symptoms of these illnesses is a lack of instinct, which means they lack the insight to their illness. They do not believe they're ill. Um, if you were to tell them the voices are not real, he would argue, and his argument would be correct. Their, their voices are real. To them, they're hearing them, which makes them real, right? Like, who's to say that me and you talking is real? You know, like, someone could come up to us and say, well, that conversation is not real. But to us, it's real, right? And it is the same with them. Their voices, their delusions were real because they could see and hear them. And so to try and tell them, uh, that's not really happening and you need to take this pill. Would you take the pill right now if someone said that to you? Right, yeah, you're thinking, no, I mean, wait a second. I know I know these things are real, so exactly. I don't really want to, I don't want to take a medicine Why when I, I don't need it. Exactly, and that's their, uh, that's their, it's lack of insight. And, and it's very questionable, like, I, I can understand how that would be confusing, you know. Like I said, if someone came up to me right now, say my daughter walked in and said, Mom, who are you talking to? I would look at her like she was the one that was nuts. Right. <laughs> you know, and so you can imagine how difficult it is for them. Now, when you do these speaking, you know, the speaking events, I know you go through a lot, and you, you talk about poverty and hardships, what is your message that you try to convey to the young people? I mean, you know, you're you're a successful woman in a, a, a male-driven field, and, you know, you're a role model. So you're already looking, people are going to look up to you, and you're also, you go into a Latino community, and you're a successful Latino. What is your message you want to convey to these young kids when you go in? What do you want them to get out of your speaking? Education. <laughs> I cannot stress that enough. You, it is so difficult to be taken seriously in any business unless you are educated, especially if you are African-American. My kids are half and half. They're half black and half Mexican. So if you're any type of um, minority, especially the African-Americans or the Latinos, and you are uneducated, that is such a stigma, right? Like, we looked at the Latinos here in L.A. If you're not educated and you live in the hood, we put you in a certain class of people, which is sad and unfortunate, but that's what happens. And that's why when I go these communities and I talk to these because I tell them education is the most powerful tool you will ever have and no one will be able to disrespect you like in my field where it's a man's world and, and look at Bob Arum who's, who went to Harvard the Harvard attorney um, they will look at you like you're stupid and treat you like you're stupid unless you're educated and that's why it, being educated was such a great tool for me, even in boxing, because nobody was going to screw me over with my money, and, you know, I never did. Like, I, you know, I handled my money very well. I had my money working for me, and 
it's just a result of education. And so that's why I tell uh, these young kids, like, you've got to be educated. Well, it's a great thing to do that. Now, with your mental health awareness, I know you had, in years ago, uh, a little while ago, you had hooked up with a Ron Artest, now Meta World Peace. How did that happen? What, what was, what was, what was the, how did you guys meet up and how did you decide to, to go to D.C.? Well, we were approached by, I believe it's a publicist for Congresswoman Apolitano, um, looking for two spokespeople for Mental Health in Schools Act. And because both Ron and I suffered from mental health issues, we were both on medication for mental health issues, so she thought, well, wow, they'd be great to talk to these young kids. So, um, we got asked to come to Congress and speak and um, go around schools and uh, do talks, and so that's what we did. Now, you must find that very fulfilling. I mean, you're going to D.C., and you're, just, you're, getting, you're getting noticed. It must be a very fulfilling feeling for you. It was because, you know, we were speaking about an issue that we were both so passionate about. You know, so it, doing that kind of work is, is far more fulfilling, you know, probably than our sport was. Now, you started a podcast called In the Ring, which is an appropriate title with Mia St. John, which is your name, which is appropriate. What made you decide to do the uh the podcast, what was, was it something that you've been thinking about for a while? Yeah, and I wanted to talk about something other than boxing for <laughs> it. You know, I wanted to um, talk about real stuff, you know, that people go through, you know, just like aging and weight and dieting and, um, you know, mental health, anxiety, depression, and, you know, all that stuff that, that we don't talk about. And as an athlete, I went through it all. And so I, I think my experiences are not much different than anyone else's. Well, I saw in one of your tweets, you talked about body dysmorphia. And I have a friend who, uh, she was on my show a lot of times, and she was actually been in Playboy. And she's a beautiful woman in great shape, but she suffered from body dysmorphia. Explain to my listeners what body dysmorphia is and what can you do about it? Well, it's, it's like when you look in the mirror and you see yourself as fat, but you're really thin. You, or, or say you're a bodybuilder and you look in the mirror and you see yourself, your muscles are small, but they're really huge. Um, things like that. You know, we don't see ourselves for what we really are. Um, and so I think that, like, people people tend to think that eating disorders have something to do with your weight. And it really doesn't. Um, eating disorders are about control. You feel something in your life is lacking control, and your weight is the only thing that you can control, right? So that's how you feel secure. Um for every pound you lose, it's like another, you know, dollar in the bank. Um, and you're controlling that. Um, so that's what people don't realize. It's not that we really uh, think we're fat. I mean, we do see ourselves that way. But it's more about the control issue. Because you could be really thin, you could be anorexic and still think you're fat and want to lose more weight. 
Now, because you know you've gone through that, and you said eating disorders. When you first fought Christy Martin, you had to go up some weight. What is that like when someone needs to be in control? Was it easier to go up weight because you feel you're in control? Yeah. I mean, how do you how do you yeah, sit there and that, go? How do you sit there and go? I got to yeah. put weight on. The majority of my career I've had to gain weight, um, which put me in the opposite problem. I could never get big enough. I would look in the mirror, um, and I would say, you know, I'm still not big enough. I need more steroids. I need more of this. I need more protein. I need more of that. Bigger, bigger, bigger. And people would say, oh, my God, like, you're huge, man. Like, your muscles are recognition that you had that? My whole life. I was probably at the age of, I just, I really knew it at the age of 14. And how do you go about taking care of that? I mean, what, what would someone do if someone's listening and they have this, if they feel a body dysmorphia, how do you get it in control? Because it's not something you could, you know, you go, it's not like, you know, people take Ritalin or Prozac. What would, what would you do to take control of it? Well, sometimes I'm on medication, and I've been on it for many, many years, so medication does work and can help, um, but you have to go to a psychiatrist or therapist and figure out what your plan of action is going to be. For me, it was therapy, um, medication, and daily um, meditation for me, Um daily medication, obviously, um, and never, um, always saying, being aware of yourself, your inner self, and your inner happiness, and not to get too tied up in, in things that are superficial and meaningless, you know, finding your purpose in life, and, and focusing on things that, that are more substantial, you know, but everybody's different, but first it starts with, I think, getting help going to uh, Overeaters Anonymous, which you'll see a lot of women with all different types of eating disorders there. Um, and that's, you know, if you, if you can't afford um, a therapist, uh, I suggest Overeaters Anonymous. And if you can't afford a therapist, go to Overeaters Anonymous. Now, your podcast, you've done three episodes, I believe. What episodes, what kind of episodes do you want to create? And are you going to have guests or what's going to be your format? Yeah, so we've already done The Eating Disorder, um, Me Too, The Me Too Movement. Um, we did, uh, let's see, Eating Disorders, Me Too. What else did we do? Oh, Aging Hormones. Um so there's a lot of other topics we did mental health. Um, and I think uh, we'll probably focus on that. Probably the next one will deal more with depression and anxiety, which so many of us suffer from. Well, you know, it's funny. I think everyone, everyone I know, you know, and everyone who's creative does, does suffer from depression somewhat. And I think sometimes, you know, I'm glad it's becoming in the forefront because, 
as you said, you know, earlier, you know, with the, the mental awareness, mental, you know, it's, it's coming out now. But back in the day, like, everyone thought depression, people would always say, oh, snap out of it, it'll be all right, snap out of it. But it's changed a lot. People know you just can't snap out of it. Well, people are, it's, it never ceases to amaze me, like, how ignorant people are. Um, or, yeah, ignorant, you know, they're, they're not stupid, they're just uneducated. And they don't know that the, the brain is the most complex organ in our body. And to expect all these neurons, these neurotransmitters to be, you know, uh, flowing at the, at the same rate, at the same time and you know with same amount of chemicals you know it, it's just it's ludicrous like from time to time our brain is going to malfunction it's going to get sick just like any other organ in our body in fact probably three times as much you know because it, it is such a complex organ so there's people that lack serotonin dopamine norepinephrine and we have to get those chemicals in balance you know, um, the schizophrenics, uh, people that suffer from schizophrenia are, are known to have an excess amount of dopamine. So what the psychotropics do is they lower, they slow down the rate of dopamine. Um, and that's what helps them calm down the voices. So when people with depression, um, usually they have a low flow of serotonin in the brain or dopamine or norepinephrine. And we have to raise those levels. So people don't understand, this is physical. This is something we just made up, like, oh, I feel like being depressed today because being depressed is so much fucking fun. <laughs> right? Right. Like, being depressed sucks. Like, who the hell wants to be depressed? I know. It's like, As if we it, just woke up one day and said, oh, I think I'm going to feel like shit today yeah it's like it's like people think yeah we just want to sit there and go oh man you know i really don't want to get out of bed today you know it's like it's not like we're sitting there sleeping and sleeping late sometimes you just don't want to get out of bed and i'm glad now yeah. people are noticing that because it really sucks when they did it people are like what are you lazy no i just don't feel like getting up yeah it's very difficult i mean it, it, yeah people don't understand it they look at it like it's a choice now, the medication, has it helped you a lot? I have a good friend who's a comedian, and he's been on TV a lot, and he had learned that he would, earlier in his career, he would just snap at a crowd. He would just sit there if he got thrown off balance, and now that he takes Ritalin, he's much more focused. Have you noticed, does, when, does the medicine the, help you a lot, and what does it do for you? Oh, my goodness. It, well, I, everybody's different, and every medication affects a different part of the brain. So my problem was I was diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder and I would get these obsessions um, that would lead to compulsions and in order to get rid of the, um, the obsession you have to have the compulsion, <laughs> that's why they call it obsessive compulsive disorder. And so what the medication does is it calms that down, just like it calms voices down, it calms down the obsessions. So it's not that I don't still obsess. It's just not, it, it won't take up my entire day. Now, there's a good side to some of these illnesses. Like, um, for instance, it made me a very competitive, um, relentless type personality. Whereas if 
I want something, there's no stopping me from getting it. I will obsess and obsess and keep trying and trying until I conquer, which is the good side. And the same with schizophrenia. Like, many of them, like my son, are just incredible artists. You know, I mean, you just look at the ones that we've known, like Van Gogh and um, Bastiao and... uh, you know, Andy Warhol, so many of them that were so like, talented. So there's, there's a good side and bad side to all of these illnesses. So where do you, where do you want to take your, uh, making the awareness of mental illness? Where, what's your ultimate goal to get the word out? What would you like to see happen? I would like to, for people to start um, being educated in mental illness and realize Number one, that um, these mass shooters, um, people with mental illness, are not evil. They're just very ill. And we need to help them rather than crucify them. Um, I would like to see um, mental health facilities that um, that are guilty of neglect and falsifying records um, for deaths and um, injuries and um, all of these wrongdoings I would love to bring to the light for people to see that, that these are government facilities that you are funding with your tax dollars and they're killing people. They're literally killing people. And 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 nobody knows that. The public doesn't. It's, I call it the hidden world of your mental health facilities. Because it is, it's like a hidden world that the government covers up, and and I'm on a mission to uncover it. Well, I hope you do. And a lot of the people have been exposed already, but not enough. And so you're going to get out there and you're going to take care of that, right? Well, yeah, you know, we're working on a documentary right now that hopefully will come out in May. Um, and I've written many articles that have already come out in the Washington Post and Huffington Post. And so we've already done a lot of media, um, but we're just going to continue. Like, we're never in the stop. You know, I go to all the hearings in L.A., all the, you know, the mental health commissions and the public, uh, the board of supervisors. And, you know, I'm always there. You know, I, I'm never going to stop. I'm just relentless. I'm a big pain in their ass. L.A. <laughs> County would just have to get rid of me. <laughs> well, they, I can tell they aren't. And you know what? I think what you're doing is awesome. And I think, you know, you, you I don't know if you yeah. really consider yourself as a role model, but you are a role model to, uh, well, both the male and females, but you must be a very strong role model to young Latina women who, as you said, grow up in certain neighborhoods, that they can look up to you and then they can see that your dreams can come true. But as you said, it starts with that education and you can make anything happen. Yeah. And and if anyone wants to um, read more about me or get a hold of me, I'm I'm on uh, Twitter at Mia St. John Boxer on Instagram and my website is MiaStJohnFoundation.org. Okay, I want to thank you for coming on. So people, please go check her out. Go check out Mia St. John Boxer 
see what she's doing. Listen to her podcast. Get aware of what's going on because this is someone who's trying to make a difference and they will make a difference because you heard she's very relentless. So go follow her on Twitter. Follow me on Twitter. I'm at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. Also go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have over 680 episodes up on there. You can email me at cooper at coopertalk.net. And don't forget my other website, stopthesalt.com. Remember a few years ago when I had that scare, that big health scare? Well, I got out of the hospital and I had to redo my whole diet. So I wrote a low-sodium cookbook. It's 120 easy recipes. No pictures to intimidate you. No long list of ingredients. If you don't use cumin, don't worry. You're not going to have cumin in any of the recipes. But go check it out. You can get it at Amazon.com or you can get it at StopTheSalt.com. So anyway, you guys, you have a great day. I'm Steve Cooper. Remember, don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamin, and I'll talk to you next week.